The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. It seems that the yogis have put at least when it comes to yama, the things which are more easy to fulfill in the beginning, the things which are more obvious, and then the things which are more delicate, more wise, more difficult to fathom and more difficult to fulfill towards the end, like the more you go into the yamas, the more they become demanding. Because if with the first three, ahimsa, non-violence, satyam, truthfulness, and asteya, no theft, things are pretty straightforward, Already with Brahmacharya, the sexual continence, things take a little bit of an effort, like naturally people don't have so much Brahmacharya, and with Aparigraha you are going to see that it's even more difficult. Aparigraha is a sort of moral and ethical norm, which in the beginning you can't even see why it is right. It is a spiritual value which is understandable only through wisdom. It takes a wise person to realize that this is indeed necessary. It may be that after listening to this lecture, you won't even feel 100% the urge to practice Aparigraha if you don't understand it and if your heart doesn't profoundly tell you, intuitively tell you, that this is the right thing to do. Like if I say non-violence, exception some made of some of you who are really hardened into revenge and violence, everybody would say, sure, if it would be possible, we'd like to live in non-violence because it's more an angelic style of living. If truthfulness is easy to accept, although maybe it's not so easy to practice in some circumstances, no theft, it's, but even Brahmacharya, those of you who listen to that lecture, you can realize, okay, if sexuality makes me lose abundantly my ojas, then I would like to conserve my ojas, even if it were for my health and for my long life, not to mention that I would like to conserve my ojas for spiritual purposes. But with Aparigraha, as you are going to see, Things are more complicated and it's difficult to see. That's why I'm, I have to hold a lecture in which to show you exactly the motivations of this Aparigraha. In Sanskrit, the word Aparigraha is the negative of Parigraha. It's A-Parigraha. And Parigraha is a double word, is a composite word, starting made from Parigraha. The word Graha from Grahana in Sanskrit means to grab with a hand to grab and parigraha means to grab around and basically it's a sort of like being grabby and that would mean being possessive grab around somebody who really likes to possess things and therefore a parigraha literally would mean do not be possessive non-possessiveness what's the catch here the yogis discovered that human beings can have another way of building a wrong relationship with material property. One wrong approach to material property was theft, steya. And the yogis demonstrated 
that if your mind is the mind of a thief, you torture yourself and you torture others because of this ceaseless envy to have what you don't have and other people have. And therefore they preached no theft, which makes your mind easy, which makes your meditation deeper and all the things that you have learned about. But then the yogis realized that some people don't steal, but some people are extremely attached to things. And some people accumulate material wealth aimlessly, just for the mere satisfaction of accumulating it. If I would ask you philosophically what life is, what are objects, what are the money which allow you to purchase services and objects in this life, if you would be in a truly relaxed stance and philosophical, you would realize that life is like when you die, you cannot the gold teeth sometimes are being pulled of your mouth and your ring and everything. You don't go in your grave with it. And wherever your spirit goes after death, you can't take anything. No, you, you are born barehanded, you go back barehanded, you go back only with your virtues and only with the deeds of your soul. But materially, nobody can take anything with them beyond the, the realm of this life. And that's why people realize that really accumulating, why would I accumulate a hundred million euros? So that when I die, my followers should spend them, saying the old man was really a fool. He worked hard for us, and now we are in Monte Carlo spending his money. No, it's like, why would I wish to accumulate beyond the necessary security for my life? To do what? For which purpose? Isn't this a pathological thing? Like, to what service is in the moment when I die and I have a huge fortune in my coffers? To whom does it serve? It's like I'm making an act of generosity for other people at the best. But of course, I'm not really generous and it's more like I'm forced to let go. I had the pathological dream that I was going to live a hundred thousand years and use and use and use and use and use things. And therefore, people know, know what are objects. They are things which you use to fulfill the goals of your life. What are money and other things? They are value which you use, and you use them because you have a dream. I have a dream that I want to save the whales. I have a dream that I want to build ecologically and give a model to the whole world. I have a dream that I want to live in a community which is compassionate and loving and selfless. I can have very beautiful dreams, but nevertheless the objects have to fulfill those dreams, because otherwise, why would I be attached to objects themselves? And yet the yogis have noticed that people start accumulating objects, money, property, not because they want to fulfill a dream, but simply because it feels right to do so. And thus, we are getting to a very important psychological point. The yogis discovered that the instinct of possessiveness, parigraha, is actually an instinct which comes from our animal nature. The animal psychology of the human being, and of course it belongs to all the animals, has a simple mechanism. Whatever is damaging to you, hurts you, destroys you, you learn to avoid it. Even the most dumb animal, if it touches a red-hot plate of metal, oh, it gets burned, it suffers, probably it won't touch it the second time. 
and if it is such a slow learner that it's going to touch it the second time and get burned again, definitely the third time it won't touch it. There is a mechanism which says when something hurts me, I don't want it anymore. I eat something which tastes awful and makes me throw up, I'm not going to eat it the second time. And if I'm a diehard and I eat it the second time, the third time surely I'm not going to do it unless I'm pathologically twisted in my mind, suffering from masochism or something like that. Therefore, the animal psychology is made to protect the animal. Whatever is painful, no, it's very dangerous for a child. There is a rare disease where some children, some babies don't feel pain. And then they sometimes cut themselves and they bleed abundantly and they laugh. It's fun. And it's dangerous because they could die. Because the pain when you cut yourself accidentally or not is protecting you from cutting yourself too deep and from cutting you again. It's a mechanism in which nature tells you, no, 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 this is painful, this is dangerous, this is unpleasant. On the contrary, when I have something which gives me a great pleasure, my neurotransmitters say, oh, we want that thing again. Of course, the ultimate end of that spectrum is everything which is immediately addictive. Heroin and the likes of them. You take it once or twice, you are booked because your neurotransmitters know that it gives you an extremely intense, pleasurable thing, state. And therefore, but this doesn't work only with drugs. It works with sex, no? Orgasm is highly addictive. It works with food. Falafels are highly addictive. Except if you ate too many falafels one day and you threw your guts up and then you get a reflex that falafels are yucky because particularly for you, they produced a very unpleasant reaction. And therefore, this is a simple animal psychology. It's a mechanism. Whatever is good, we want more of it. We get addicted to it. And whatever is bad, we refuse it. Now, of course, you realize that from the standpoint of the human consciousness, this is complete bollocks and you cannot live your life like this. For example, if something is good in the meaning of pleasant, it can kill you. Now, many people can like beef steaks, but medical statistics shows that the biggest meat-eating population has the biggest colon cancer. So, beef steaks may be pleasant, but they kill you. Some people love cigarettes. Some people love drugs. Not everything which is pleasant is necessarily good. And sometimes we stay away from things which are pleasurable, precisely because they kill us and they actually are bad. And the other way around. Sometimes there are things which are unpleasant and which are highly beneficial. You go and take some Chinese herbal drink from your Chinese doctor and it tastes like shit and it smells like shit and heals your disease. You'd give it to a child, no child would take it. Every child would spit it out of their mouth and actually it's highly beneficial. And I as a human being, if the Chinese doctor says this is good for your liver, I drink it and I make a face and I say it's okay, it's good for me, I have to drink this thing because it's healthy. Therefore in life we don't just go by the thing, the things which I like I do and the things which I don't like I don't do. You wake up in the morning, maybe some of you are not used to come at 8.30 to a yoga course because you are night owls 
and by going to bed at 5 o'clock in the morning, your red corpuscles are diminished, your immune system is completely deranged, and you come to Agama, and Agama says at 8.30 your yoga course starts, and you wake up as a zombie at 8.15 in the very last second, and you come to the yoga class clenching your teeth and saying, this yoga is good for me, but oh gosh, I wish they would start it at 10 o'clock so I could sleep late in the morning. No? You don't always do what you like. Sometimes you do things which you know they are good for you, although you dislike them. If you are like Mother Teresa and you have to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to prepare the breakfast for 250 children, it's not always pleasant to wake up at 5 o'clock or to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning and do your yoga tapas or whatever you do. Sometimes it takes effort. You have to put effort and it's not pleasant. So we know very well that human beings don't always do what's pleasant. To live a life in which, oh, I do only what I like, you are the most ignorant and the most egoistic and the most short-sighted person in the world. Because human beings don't just do only what they like. We do what we feel is good, even when it takes effort and self-sacrifice. And therefore the point of this is, human beings since long, long time don't work like animals anymore. The animal psychology is still in our brain, because our brain does have an animal heritage, but we cannot afford to act like animals anymore, like we eat only what we like, and we do only what we like, and we avoid what we don't like. It's, we are far, far from that. The same conflict we have when we talk about sexuality. If my sexuality is at the level of nature and biology, I can very well be a premature ejaculator. No, I'm having sex with my woman, and in 30 seconds I ejaculate, and she's upset at me, and she says, how can that be? And I'm just natural. No, that's what my body does. But if I'm not like that, I educate myself, and I'm saying, wait a second. I can't just do whatever comes to me. This is not the way a human being neither makes love or lives their life. And therefore, the yogis have noticed that in the human being there exists naturally the tendency, which is very insidious, that things which you use in daily life and which are good for you, you get attached to them because they serve you. For example, you can get attached to your slippers. You tried different, five different models of flip-flops, and one of those flip-flops is giving you blisters between your, in your toes, one of those flip-flops is falling off your feet all the time. One of those flip-flops is getting your feet dirty because it has a bad plastic which, they, which wears off. And after you searched and searched and searched, finally you found the most blissful flip-flops or shoes which you can find. And then naturally you are ready to kill for your flip-flops, you know? It's like, I love my flip-flops because I looked for them so much, and these are finally the good ones. A woman says, oh, I found the ideal pair of scissors, which are good for my skin and nails, because all these little scissors, they are crap, most of them. And then I found this pair of Austrian or German dishers or whatever, which are millimetrically adjusted German technology, and these are the most accurate scissors which I found. And if somebody steals those scissors from your purse, 
you are going suicidal, you know, because where are you going to find such good scissors? Like everything, your socks, they are socks which give you allergy. And finally you find a pair of mittens which are excellent for you and they don't give you any allergy. You fall in love with them. You fall in love with your bicycle. You fall in love with your car. You fall in love with your scissors. You fall in love with things. This thing is called in common psychological language attachment or possessiveness. And it's, it's when an object or something gives you pleasure. That of course extends to money. It's nice to have your purse full because if suddenly you want to go to Penang, you can go to Penang with a train and a minibus or you can go to Penang by plane, you know, and you cannot afford to go by plane unless you have your purse really full. And it's much more comfortable to go two hours with a plane than to go 20 hours with a minibus and with a train. So money can be very addictive because it makes you a couch potato. You just shower money around and the pizzas are coming and the sex services are coming and the airplanes are coming, you know. It's good to have money, it's very addictive because it gives you pleasure, because you can do whatever, fulfill whatever whim you have. Therefore, the yogis have noticed this very important thing, that because we preserve a reminder, a remainder, a sort of reminiscence of animal psychology in our brains, as soon as some objects and some material things please us, we get attached. And we get attached to the point where we are ready to kill somebody for it. No? Somebody could say, for God's sake, it's just a pair of slippers. No? Give them away. Jesus says, if somebody asks for your shirt, give him your coat. You know, like, go double. Go, you know, up the stakes. Like, don't, don't just do only what is asked of you, you know? And that's why I'm saying the yogis, by noticing this, have realized that here we're having a big, big spiritual blockage which can hold us really prisoner to things. And the statement which was generally given was this, the possession possesses the possessor. Not only you own your socks, but then your socks own you if you are not ready to let go of them in five seconds. In the movie Heat, Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, one of them, I think De Niro, who was the thief, a famous thief, he tells to Pacino, in my line of work, if you cannot let go of everything, including your family and everything, all your money, all your bank book, house, home, girlfriend, in 30 seconds and relocate in the other end of the world and start fresh, you're going to get caught. Like you have to be like completely detached from everything. Like the police is right about to catch you and you do the mistake that you have to go home to pick up your child. Then you get caught because the police is waiting for you at your apartment. You should have simply noticed the tension, jumped in the first airplane and left and never looked back. Can you do that? Then you are good, he says, for my line of business. If not, you get caught. This kind of thing while they're discussed in a criminal movie, that's exactly what the yogis were talking about. The possession possesses the possessor. Not only you own things. The things own you because if you make a chain between you and something, you should never forget that you are at the other end of the chain. And that means at some point you won't be able to let go. 
The ultimate example in spirituality about this is given by Jesus when he provides the famous parable of the rich man. There is this rich young boy who Jesus has held a spectacular speech and probably this young man, having a soul like every other human being, he's touched deeply and he, he wants to ask for advice. And because he is a well-educated, powerful person, he kind of cuts right through. And while Jesus is passing by, protected by his bodyguards or whatever his disciples were, this young man cuts through and he says, Master, Master, I have a question. No. And Jesus, you know, like he stops. Imagine how many people were pulling the clothes of Jesus. Me, me, I also have to ask you something. Do a little thing for me or something, right? And Jesus stops for this one man who is a strong personality and turns and this young man says master master how can i reach eternal life boy he is also smart and pragmatic isn't he like that's the question right if you would meet with jesus it would be stupid to ask him jesus can you tell me what i have been in my previous life you know you can do some yoga exercises for that but this guy is asking him the million dollar question which plagues everybody he says if it's possible to reach eternal life then of course I would like to have it. Who would be stupid to die when you can live forever? No? Reaching eternal life means that afterwards you can conquer the universe because you have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, you can. the universe is yours. It's just a matter of time. And for you, time doesn't matter anymore because you've got eternal life. And therefore, it's the biggest question. You know, the eternal life is the first and biggest gift to get. So this young man is smart. He is not rich for nothing. He is pragmatic. He knows the good questions to ask. So he says, Master, how should I get eternal life? And apparently, not only that he asks the right question, but he's asking it to the right person. Like if there were five people in the history of this planet who knew the answer to this question, then even then definitely Jesus was one of them because he is in the top of the top. He is classified as being the avatar of God on this planet. So if you ask of Jesus this question, you definitely are going to get a pertinent answer. You can ask this question to somebody who simply will say, I kind of don't know. I myself am asking myself the same question. So the guy is asking the right question to the right person. In terms of oriental metaphysics, you can maybe say that the soul of this young man had been searching for thousands of lifetimes the opportunity to get to the right question and to ask it to the right teacher. Like what an opportunity to be born in the same time at space with Jesus who browsed just for three years and a half as a teacher the surface of the earth and to have the chance to meet him personally and to have the chance to ask him a question. Boy, you know, this is the chance of a thousand lifetimes. And this young man, young man has it. And Jesus turns, scans him, sees in a second who this man is, and Jesus answers. He says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. Two banal things. Like what's that compared to eternal life? No. This guy says, give everything you have to the poor. Imagine that this guy was a backpacker. He had a backpack and a little plastic card in his pocket or a, a wad of money. So he would have taken the backpack and given it to the first person, taken the wad of money and give it to another person. I gave everything I have to the poor, and now I follow you. 
which was not difficult because Jesus was not like a guru who kept people for 12 years to educate them in yoga. Jesus lived three years and a half and then he kicked the bucket. Therefore, it was not even difficult to follow Jesus. It was just a two, three year at the most effort to stay with a man, to eat and sleep and uh, know what was the big deal. So it's kind of peanuts. What do you need to live to reach eternal life? Just give everything you have to the poor and follow me. And the guy couldn't, in five seconds, in 30 seconds, he could have said, look, I just gave everything I have and I'm following you. So now it's your turn, Jack. Hit me with the eternal life. I did my part. You, you told me what to do. I did it. Where is the eternal life? But guess what? This young man couldn't do it. And the only reason for which he couldn't do it was because he had too much. He was rich. He was not poor. If he would have been poor, what did I have and what did I lose? I had a little bit. I could as well give it away. It was my last money for my last lunch. I don't have them anymore, but I've got the eternal life. But this man had too much money. And give, staying away from all that money is much more painful than staying away from a hundred baht in your pocket. And therefore, this man screwed up painfully. He hesitated. He said, um, me uh, give up everything my father toiled for. Uh, and then Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, you see, it is more difficult for a rich man to reach the kingdom of heaven than for the camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why? The rich man has not got an Atman like everybody else, has an immortal soul. The rich man has got seven chakras like everybody else. The rich man is sometimes smarter and more pragmatic than most people around. And yet he can't reach because he can't let go of that bloody thing which he had. This is where the problem is. That's why the yogis have said, be careful because the human brain is an animal machine and it develops an ugly habit that you attach yourself to the things which serve you in your daily life and then without realizing you are putting away your freedom. Not only they belong to you, but you belong to them. And if you can't let go in 30 seconds, you are going to lose the opportunity of 10,000 lifetimes. You are going to be at the point where you could get eternal life and you won't get it because of the money. When he died, you can be sure that that young man slapped himself vigorously over his cheeks of how stupid he had been that he stood on the gate of immortality and he screwed up because of some money which he lost anyhow when he died. This is why the, this issue has appeared as very strongly in yoga. There exists in the human being an automatic function which makes us get attached. And yoga simply says, identify this function in you and kill it. It's, what, it's a heritage, it's something which you inherit from the animals and you don't need it anymore. You have surpassed that evolutionary level and while it served your animal brothers, it doesn't serve you, it blinds you now. This capacity should be used with awareness and with discrimination. Don't let it use you. And thus, the yogis have developed this concept of non-possessiveness. Now, this concept is very simple. It simply says, be careful because possession possesses you. And you won't know, it will creep on you. In the beginning, when you get a new pair of slippers, 
you are going to say, oh, they are lovely slippers. And then somebody says, give them to me. Oh, you know what, you can have them. But after a hundred days, you are not ready to let go of them that easily. Then you got used to them, they creeped on you, and it's more difficult. And therefore, the yogis are attracting the attention upon this thing, and the fact that your attachment to objects can become your imprisonment in this world, because you cling to some things which when you will die, you will have to let go of anyhow. And that's why death is so painful for many people. Because in the last five minutes before death, you are confronted with all the hell in the world. Because you, let, you have to let go and you know that your children or your relatives are assholes and they are going to misuse all your objects and all your money and all your things. And you are afraid because you go into the unknown and it's a mixture of fear and disappointment and attachment. At least five minutes if you could live more, you would like to live more. Why? Because nobody likes to let go. But then try to think about the Japanese samurai. The Japanese samurai, when they entered in the service of a feudal lord, they made an oath that they are already dead. When you are a samurai, you are dead. You lost your life. You gave it to your feudal lord. Therefore, you can be detached because you haven't got anything. You are already dead. How can you get attached to something or somebody as well? The point here is that this attachment, this possessiveness, then it has two solutions. That's why you have that drawing, which I promised you're going to see. Because again, here we are having a problem. As soon as you possess something, money, houses, cars, whatever it is, and as you are going to see a bit later in my lecture, even people, because people have the insane feeling that they possess other people, such as I possess my child, my child belongs to me, my lover belongs to me. As long as you have this feeling, you are going into trouble. You are already possessed by your animal nature, and the question is how to deal with it. To this challenge, the spirituality of this planet, again, has generated two solutions. The primitive, straightforward, simple solution, based on a radical approach, which in sexuality, if you remember, not to lose your ojas, you had to stay celibate, stay away from sex, and thus you don't lose ojas the sexual way. In terms of this, it simply means you shouldn't possess anything or you should possess only the absolute, absolute, absolute minimum for your survival. You shouldn't possess anything. Then what are you going to get attached to? This means that some forms of spirituality, almost all of them, Tibetan, I'm sorry, Buddhism in general, not only Tibetan, and uh, ashram life from India, Christian monasteries, Sufi mysticism and others, they have simply preached poverty, deprivation. That's the second big thing in yoga and spirituality, which bakes the noodle of modern people who say, that's why I don't want to be a yogi. Because yoga preaches celibacy, and I don't want to be celibate. Yogis say, if you are not celibate, if you don't stay away from sex, you'll never get there. And I can't stay away from sex, and I don't have the intention of staying away from sex. So for me, Buddhahood in this life, it's out of the question. I hope Saturday I dispelled this myth from your mind and I showed you that it can be different. And now the second scarecrow is 
not only that you have to be chaste, celibate, but you have to be poor. Give everything to the poor, sell everything and give it to the poor. If you want to be a Buddhist monk, you just have to have a robe which is donated and the begging bowl, that's all you can have. Even those are questionable if they don't belong to the monastery and not to you as a person. You have nothing. When you have nothing, what will you get attached of? Nothing. The most simple way to not get attached to objects is to have none. Here, various religions and spiritual paths, they toned it according to their own wish. For example, in India, there are Babas, the Digambaris, the Digambara Swamis, they don't have anything even clothes, they go naked. Digambara means that you are, you are clothed with a space. The space is your clothes. You are naked, basically. You rub your body with ashes, you go naked. Go to the Kumbamela, India is full of naked Babas. If you don't have clothes, there is no problem. Even Jesus says, you should not weave, you should not toil, you should not make agriculture. Look at the birds of the sky. No, look at the lilies in the fields. They don't make agriculture. They don't make cloth industry. And God keeps them. And Francis of Assisi and many others, they tried to live just like this. Live naked in the middle of the nature, like ultimate hippies. God keeps you, and why would you bother to manufacture textiles, to build Eiffel Towers, when you could sit and pray and reach enlightenment? That's a sort of extreme nothingness. Like, I don't want anything, I just want poverty, I just want spirituality. Of course, most of you here in this room, you're not up to this. You came here with an airplane, and you are having nice clothes, and you are driving motorbikes, which you have rented or bought or something. No, there's not, there are not many people today in the Western culture, or others for the case, who aspire to be poor. I, I aspire to have nothing, because that's the only way for me to be detached, to have no possessiveness. And that's why many people are scared. Many people say, I like my Pradas, you know. If I cannot go around in my Pradas, then, uh, you know, yoga, these yoga people, bunch of hippies. They want to be hip, nobody has, can rub two pennies together, you know. Everybody wants to be poor and to do their meditation. That's not me. I like to drive a Jaguar, you know. It's like, that's what I want, how I want to be in my daily life. If, you, if I can't have a Jaguar, I feel not good. And therefore, the question is, can you have a Jaguar and do yoga? Like, is there an alternative to this? or the only alternative is the equivalent of celibacy, which means deprivation. This deprivation is on degrees. Some sadhus from India say you shouldn't even have clothes. There are Buddhist monasteries which says a monk should have a line of clothes, a robe, and a begging bowl. That's all you are going to have. Uh, there are Tibetan rules in Tibetan Buddhist Lama culture which says a Lama should not own more wealth and property than he needs for surviving one year from today's date. If you have resources more than you need for you to survive one year, you are piling up. You are simply possessive. It's too much because you don't even know if you are going to live for one more year, then what are you piling up for? You could be run over by a car tomorrow night and then what were you piling up for? You are, it's like you're having no confidence in yourself, no confidence in life. There is no need to pile up. So 
wait a second, there is a big difference between going naked and having material resources for one year. That's quite a difference, which means there is no exact rule, absolute carved in stone by the hand of God. It, there is just a sort of personal evaluation. The Tibetan lamas will say you are non-possessive, not attached, if you don't pile up more than one year's life needs. And some people will say, no, 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 even if you pile up five days' life needs, it's too much, you are attached. So here the opinion differs, but nevertheless the opinion of everybody who goes in this direction is, therefore, you should not have things, because thus you stay away from temptation. Having things is a temptation. And then there is the other alternative. And that alternative, of course, you expect it by now, comes from this provocative people who are the tantrics. The, exactly as the tantrics came up with a different solution for sex, the Aikido of sex, like you can have sex, but you shouldn't lose your ojas nevertheless, and thus they devised tantric sexuality, they did the same thing with property. They said, wait a second, the problem is not that you have some property, money, whatever, the problem is if you can let go of it in 30 seconds, right? The problem is if you can have it without desiring it, without being attached to it. Is that possible? In the beautiful poem by Rudyard Kipling, which is in one of your handouts for the month, a beautiful poem called If, Rudyard Kipling, inspired by the Indian mysticism, because he lived in India for years and generally in the Orient here, he wrote this poem in which it's if, 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 if you can do this and if you can do that and if you can do this, the last verse is, then you are truly a man, my son, but he means a man like a real human being, an enlightened human being, a, a perfect human being, an improved human being. And one of those many ifs, 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 ifs is, if you can make millions and then play them on a dice and lose everything, and start all over from scratch as if nothing had happened, then you are truly a human being, my son. Like Rudyard Kipling says, it doesn't matter that you have a lot. Are you ready to let go of them like this? Like one moment your soul gets enthusiastic about a spiritual thing. You meet with Jesus, and then you suddenly say, oh, today is the day of my life. Today is the D-Day, and I leave everything in five seconds. It's easy for me. I'm not possessed by my possessions. Can you do that? Therefore, the tantrics have invented a different approach to it. They have said the problem is not if you have. The problem is not if you are dressed in silk or not. The problem is if it, that thing makes you lose your soul. If you are not going to lose the opportunity of a thousand lifetimes because your own possession blinds you and you don't catch the right train. And therefore, the tantrics have invented the thing that the problem is not what you own, but how you own it, and that you have to, like with sex, of course, and therefore the idea would be that you have to own things without being attached to them. This kind of approach or psychological thing is, has been called detachment. And detachment can be seen very easily. In India, we had yogis who were following this path, many, many babas, many, many of the hermits and ascetics, 
and even great gurus like Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was despising the gold and all the material wealth and so on, and they made this experiment even to show it to people, which was a sadistic experiment, because poor Ramakrishna took it very seriously. Every time they put a coin in his palm, Ramakrishna screamed with pain because he, had, he felt a burning sensation from the contact with money, even with a simple coin. He didn't feel burning contact with a piece of metal, only with coins because of the symbol. And you would say, this guy is crazy. But actually, he got blister marks in his hand. He got actual burn marks in his hand every time they put a coin in his hand. So disgusted he was by money. Ramakrishna never wanted to touch money. He said that's the ultimate evil in this world. On the other hand, Swami Shivananda, who was not less of a yogi, Swami Shivananda was a pragmatic person, and he started receiving lots of donations, and he built a general hospital, an eye hospital, an ashram, a yoga university called the Forest University, a printing press, a kitchen for the vagabond babas, a colony for the lepers, uh, so many things. To build all that Shivananda built, post-publishing 200 books, probably he handled millions and millions. And yet nobody accused Swami Shivananda that he had become attached and blinded by the property. Therefore, Tantra is right. It is possible to handle value without getting attached to it, without having a feeling of property over it, exactly as it belongs to God. This is the money of God. It's, in, it's entrusted to me. doesn't really belong to me. Then you don't have a feeling of property and it doesn't possess you. This is one of the first things. And many people say, oh, lovely. We love this Tantra. It allows us to have sex, even excessive sex. And uh, it also allows us to go dressed in silk and adorned with jewels. Lovely. Well, remember that nevertheless this is something to be taken very seriously exactly as Tantra is not always an easy thing to do even more so Aparigraha is a very very difficult thing to do because before you know it it got you it, it hooked you here is the story which Ramakrishna had to say as a parable to justify this Ramakrishna says there is this yoga disciple, very devoted to his yoga and to his spiritual perfection, and he asks for the advice of a guru, and the guru graciously teaches him the yoga to do. And then the guru says, stay here and practice. I taught you, now you need to practice to get the results. So the guru says, make a hut here. It's a good climate, it's a good place in the jungle here. Make a hut. Nearby, one kilometer away, you have the village. The villagers are pious, nice, calm people. Every morning you can go to the village and beg your food, as the Babas did for centuries, like the Buddhist monks in all over Asia. You beg your food, you have your hut, you do your yoga. One day I shall come back and visit you and see how things are going with you. So the young man, full of zest for his yoga practice, he starts doing this. And the teacher tells him, actually it would be good even to give up your clothes. There is no winter in this part of the world. The temperature is 25 degrees plus all the time, as you see in this island. No. It's like you don't need clothes. Clothes will be an unnecessary complication for your life. Live naked like all Babas do. 
And the pupil says, well, you know, Guruji, uh, I'm going to do everything you told me, but I'm not going to give up all my clothes. I'll keep a loincloth to put around my hips because I don't want to go in the village and show my private parts and so on. The Guru says, you're a fool. There are so many naked Babas going around anyhow. What, what are you better with than them? Why should you be prudish about this? No, no, the guy says, I don't want to provoke anything. What's a loincloth? I mean, you don't involve that I'm going to spoil my yoga because I'm holding a loincloth around my hips. The Guru says, it's your choice. You live your life. It's your practice. He goes, the guy is spending like this six months. Everything is fine with the exception of one little flaw. A mouse gets attached to his hut, to his clay hut, and that mouse has nothing to eat except maybe to take some leftovers from the food, and that's why that mouse is coming every night, night and chewing at his loincloth. And slowly, slowly his loincloth starts getting shredding and falling apart. So he's very distressed because that's his only loincloth, and he has to, now it's going away. So one peasant sees him one day more sad as he's begging his food and says, what's the matter, young man? And he says, you know, I have only this loincloth and there is a damn mouse in my hut which is eating it away. What to do? I'm thinking about moving somewhere else. At which the peasant says, oh, we can see you are not a farmer and so on. What we do when we have mice, we keep a cat around the house. When you have a cat, there will be no mouse around there. So it's very simple. So he gives him a kitten. So he takes a cat, but then he's got a problem because he's eating rice and bananas and the cat cannot really eat rice and bananas and the mice are over very soon. And then he has to beg for some milk. So every day he's coming and saying, food, food, and could you please give some milk for my cat? After this is happening for three years or so, one of the peasants one day tells him, young man, we all like you. We know that we are this very... Uh, serious yogi who lives there, we all admire you for your spiritual work and so on. Uh, you every morning come and ask for milk for your cat. You know what? We decided to simplify your life. One, my, one of my cows just gave birth to two calves and there is no room for both of them in my stable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the cow. Take the cow, tie it to a tree in the forest, it will eat leaves from the forest. You can milk it, you don't need to come to the village just for the milk of your cat. So now he's got a cow. When he has a cow, not a cat, he has a cat and now he's got a cow. And he discovers that there are some problems. In the rainy season, the cat needs to have a little roof. I'm sorry, the cow needs a little roof, so he needs to build a sort of primitive stable. And in the dry season, there needs to be some hay gathered for the cow because there is not enough food, so he needs to have a little barn where he should put some hay. And there he is, he got a cat, he got a cow, he got a barn, he got a stable. Eventually, if he's got all these things according to the good old Indian custom, he gets himself a wife to administer his household. <laughs> then he's got two kids and he's a farmer. One day the guru comes back and there are a couple of kids playing in the sand. And he says, where is the yogi who lives in this area? And the kids don't know anything about any yogi. And the guru says, it's not possible unless he was killed by some wild animals or something. My disciple was here and he should be a great yogi by now. And then the guy is coming from the field with a shovel on his shoulder because he's not a yogi, he's a farmer. And he sees the guru from a distance and suddenly then only he realizes where his life has gone. And he falls on his knees and he says, Guruji, what have I done? Ramakrishna tells this story to show how attachment works. 
because he couldn't give up his loincloth, he had to push, to push the envelope, he had to escalate, to escalate, to escalate the deal until finally found himself as a farmer. And Ramakrishna says, if this young man would have been asked in the first day or in the first weeks of his stay in the forest to do this, he would have said, I'd rather cut my throat than become a farmer with a wife and two kids. I will never make this deal. But 10 years later, that's where he was. That means these things are not coming suddenly. They are coming little by little, one millimeter every day. One compromise today, tomorrow one compromise to the compromise of today, and like this you deviate until you find yourself in a totally different place. That's why Ramakrishna said, you might think that you are smart enough to control your attachment to the loincloth, because what's a loincloth? But the mind is a very perverted animal that pushes the envelope. You get used to one thing, and then it seems to be normal to go to the next thing, because your referential point changes all the time. And thus, you deviate. And that's why Ramakrishna was on the, on the opinion, better poor than playing games and regretting it in the end of your life. Other yogis did not agree with this. Swami Shivananda, as I told you, did not agree to this. Not that Swami Shivananda was a rich man, but Swami Shivananda dealt with lots of money and property and donations and this, and he was not disturbed in his spirituality. He did not become blinded. He still was one of the great yogis. Swami Paramahamsa Yogananda, coming to America, he even had disciples who were millionaires and who put their bank book on the table, and they said, Yogananda-ji, it's yours. And they bought land, so much land, expensive land they have in California today. No, rich people donating it. However, never accused Yogananda that Yogananda became spoiled and greedy and blind and not spiritual. Like he managed to deal with these things, not getting attached to anything, realizing, knowing I am who I am. This is something which comes through the charity of people. It's not mine. I can consider it entrusted to me for a while. And thus, therefore, there are always two ways. One way is Avoid any temptation, Stay, be safe, you wouldn't believe it. I've seen people in monasteries, Buddhist and Christian, I've seen people in ashrams getting attached to incredible stuff which even didn't belong to them. And people, it's such, so, so ridiculous is the mind, you know. You live as a monastery in a room because the abbot in the monastery ascribes you a room and then you get attached to that room. Like, my room is my room and I like to be in my room. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the monastery. You stay in that room through the mercy of the monastery. So why do you get attached like this is your room? See, it's a human thing. It's just human to get attached to some things which are familiar to you. The yogis have said, if you can supervise yourself all the time, then there is no problem about having, owning things. In the history of India, there has been a tantric school which even went for this, the famous Kaulas. Kaula means a sort of noble house of India, a sort of noble family. It means a sort of elite circle. And history tells us that the Kaulas were most of them upper class Indian people, princes, maharajas. When you'll have the curiosity to study art, art of yoga, art of tantra, you will see that there are many miniatures 
which depict not only sadhus smeared in ashes, but princes, rich people practicing tantra, practicing yoga. Like, wait a second, in India it was not only the monks, the people who gave everything to the poor, who were practicing spirituality. There were also people who were dressed in silk and adorned with jewels and who lived in palaces. And they could as well practice spirituality and have great success because Tantra teaches the Aikido of it. says the problem is not having things or money or that. The problem is keeping your mind awake all the time and supervising. Test yourself once a week, once a month, once every three months or whenever your time is. Test yourself. Am I still detached? If in this moment I was about to give everything, could I do it? Realistically, like not lying to myself. Lying to yourself is the worst thing which you can do. I, in full sincerity, if I would meet with Jesus today and he will tell me, give everything you have to the poor and follow me, would I do it? This second, right now, would I take this decision? And if you still have that, you did not get blind by your possessions. But verify yourselves. Don't make it a hypocrisy. If you don't have it, then it's better to give up everything. Because then you are building, you are weaving your own prison. You are weaving your net of connections and you give lip service by saying, I want to reach moksha, I want to reach mukti, I want to reach liberation. No, you don't. Because you are clinging to your objects. If you are clinging to your property and objects and houses and this, you are not looking for moksha. You are just pretending that you are looking for moksha. Moksha means that you should be liberated of everything, including of your possessions. When you'll go to Shambhala, your earthly possessions have absolutely no relevance. When you are moving to the kingdom of God, your earthly possessions have absolutely no relevance there. And that's why here exist also two alternatives. The ascetic, the dry solution, which is give up everything and get poor. I know people who apply that and the tantric opinion, which is pay constantly attention to your mind and don't let yourself caught by your possession. Supervise if yourself, if for a spiritual cause, you are ready to give up everything, as if you didn't have anything. If you wouldn't have anything, you would say, I can do that, no? Prince Charles of England was tempted to go to Osho Rajneesh in his early day in Pune because probably the guy being a Scorpio heard about all these things with Tantra and he was a bit tempted by the Tantra thing. And the protocol officer of Buckingham Palace told him you can't go. If you go, you are disinherited. You can't be the next king of England. So Prince Charles had to choose between his temptation to go to Osho and maybe become a sannyasi in Pune, or stay to be a king. Probably a king he will never be as well, because the old woman seems to live forever and will bury everybody anyhow, right? And he's not going to get it anyhow, but meanwhile he sold his soul for the possibility that he could be a king one day. Attachment, attachment. He was not ready to let go of that, and he said, for my soul, I can give up everything, even my future as a king. Or if the people of England love me, they will understand me and they will accept me anyhow. Who cares? I'm not going to prostitute my soul for the protocol officer of Buckingham Palace. But he didn't. That's attachment. 
attachment is that you can't let go. Your father is the owner of the whatever, Chase Manhattan Bank, and because of that you can't do what you want because your parents have a position and have money and you are potentially the heir of a big fortune. Thus, you are the prisoner. You are attached. That's aparigraha. Aparigraha simply says, set yourself free from all this shit. Be a free spirit. Live freely. Don't be possessed by material things because when you die, all these material things will serve nothing. That's the point here. So, those are the two solutions. Please, please read in the papers of today because there are many examples given there of what this detachment means. Now, there is a second issue here which goes even deeper. This issue is not only that the human brain gets attached to objects, property, money, houses, land, whatever, but the human mind gets attached to people because the mind is just a computer and the computer cannot make really the difference between an object and a person and the tragedy is that we treat people as objects this person belongs to me and thus we start getting attached to people attachment in daily language has become to be considered even a quality a woman says my husband loves me very much. He's very attached to me. Spit it out of your mouth, silly creature. He's attached to you. He's going to samsara. He's not going to nirvana. He's attached to you. He's in trouble. And so are you. Why do you like the attachment? Now woman says, I'm very happy. My husband is very, he loves me enormously. And he's very detached from me. He gives me all the freedom in the world, and I give him all the freedom. And we love each other like in the first day. We love each other with all our hearts, and we are completely detached. No, Jesus loves people, but he is not attached to them. Therefore, love is not attachment. That's why many people say, love hurts. No, 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 no. Let's rephrase it. The love of Rumi doesn't hurt. The Hollywood love hurts. The Bollywood love hurts. The bourgeois love hurts because it's based on attachment. Attached love hurts because when you are attached, inevitably, even in the last day of your life, if not earlier than that, you are going to lose the thing of which you've been attached. Therefore, surely it hurts. Only detached love does not hurt. That's the love of God. And thus, the point here is, if you get attached to people, that's because you treat them as objects. And remember, it's a shameful, grievous mistake to treat people as objects. Because exactly as you treat them as objects, exactly they treat you as an object. And when we treat each other as objects, it's hell. There is no beauty, there is no relationship, it's just attachment. And the attachment is, you scratch my back, I scratch your back. If you play ball with me, you are mine. Your wife or your father or your friend or somebody says, if you behave like this, I shall not love you anymore. Well, go ahead, don't love me anymore because you are not loving me anyhow. Because you put such conditions. If you would love me, you would not put any condition on me. You wouldn't say, oh, if you behave like this, then I don't love you. But God loves you 
anyway, all the time. The great mystics have said the sun of the love of God shines over virtues and sinners alike. Everybody is the child of God, even if they do a mistake. Even when you do a mistake, you still are bathed in the love of God. The love of God does not diminish. That's the real love, not the attached love, which pets you when you do something good and spanks you when you do something bad. That's not love. That's karma. That's a law of nature. Has nothing to do with love. And that is why, please remember that we live into relationships which are severely perverted because we treat other people instinctively. I'm not saying on purpose. That's how the brain is built. We treat people erroneously as objects and they do treat us as objects. So try to realize what I am saying here in this situation. We treat each other as objects. A statistic done by Dale Carnegie in the many, many years ago, almost a hundred years ago, demonstrated that the, the story or the issue of relationships, and I'm not talking only about love relationships, I'm talking about relationships between friends, relationships between parents and children, relationships between employers and employees, relationships is the second most painful topic in human people's life and interests after health. Like Dale Carnegie made a survey about how many workshops and conferences and things were around and what was the theme and what was the attendance. And the maximum attendance was for health and the second most popular subject was relationships. Everybody has a problem with relationships. You meet with people and people say, my relationships are not good. I don't have a friend. You know, how many of you have a friend? Not like these kinds of friends that it's here and there, you know. The word friend is misused in the Western culture as well as the word love. In every Hollywood movie, everybody says, I love you, I love you, I love you. How much, really? No? What love is that? If you have a friend, would you put your life in the hand of that friend? Would you give your bank book and the keys to your safe to that friend? Absolutely. When I learned about friendship in my childhood, I was given a parable, a story from Greece, that a man was condemned to death for a guilt in a Greek city, and he asked the ruler of the city, please allow me for one month to go to my city and salute my children and my wife and fix my affairs so that they shouldn't suffer and that I shouldn't die without them knowing what happened to me and all the rest. And the ruler of the city laughed sarcastically and said, you are not. You think I'm going to let you go? I'll never see you again. Who would be insane to come back to be condemned to death? So the ruler of the city said, if you have somebody who would stand in for you in the prison, and if you don't show up, will die for you, then I will let you go. And this man had a friend, and he asked his friend, and the friend went in prison, and this guy was delayed because they were sailing and contrary winds and storms. And he reached in the last minute when his friend about was to be executed. And he ran coming from the boat, from the pier, and he said, stop the execution. I'm here. I'm the one that has to die. And the ruler of the city, when he saw this, he said, this is real friendship. And this is, should not be allowed to die. And he said, I humbly beg you if you can allow me to be friends with you. Because this is what friends are like. Do you, any one of you here has a friend who would do this for you? Or you would do that for them? This is friendship. 
two girls are friends until a, one of them takes the boyfriend of the other one. And then they become cats. They are not friends anymore. Right? This is the problem. The problem is that where is the real friendship and love? We don't treat people like people. We treat people like objects. You have to do like this. But what if that person doesn't want to do like this? No, I can't love Walter because Walter emigrated to New Zealand and except for the New Zealanders themselves, New Zealand is some little place on the corner of the map and when you've gone there, it means you've gone to the other side of the world and nobody's going to see you again, ever. No? And somebody says, why don't you love Walter? Well, I don't love Walter because Walter is gone to New Zealand and what am I going to get from him in exchange? Like you can't love somebody who doesn't give you anything in exchange. Is that the definition of love? that you can love only somebody who loves you back, that's completely ridiculous and we know theoretically that it's not so, and yet this is what we do. We can't love Walter because we are not going to see him again. Why can't you love somebody whom you are never going to see again in your life? Even more so. This is the attachment. We tell to Walter, if you, don't do, if you go to New Zealand, I shall not love you anymore. <coughs> It's excellent anyhow, because you didn't love him before as well. That which you had for him was attachment, passion, lust, desire, possessiveness, whatever you want to call it, but not love. Because God still loves Walter, even Walter went to New Zealand. And please remember that this is a big, big problem. We get attached to people. People can't really understand this because we are used to do it. We think it's normal to put conditions on people. That's why the mystics have called the real love unconditional love. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Can you love somebody who harms you? That's love. He says, if you love only those who love you back, even the tax collectors can do that. The tax collectors were probably scum of the earth in the time of Jesus. And Jesus says, you love those who love you back? But the tax collectors do that also. Don Corleone loves his kids because his kids love him. Stalin, Joseph Stalin, is a good grandfather. Adolf Hitler is in love with that woman, Eva Brown, and they die together. Like everybody, even the most wretched person in the world can love somebody who loves them back. But the question is, can you love somebody who gives you the elbow? Can you love somebody who gives you the finger? Can you love somebody who is not giving you love but bad things? Because that's where love starts. To love somebody who scratches your back is easy. It's very easy. Even the tax collectors do that. There is no virtue in that. The problem is that this detachment in terms of relationship is about love. Listen to the argument of the materialists. They say there cannot exist a God. Because if there would exist a God, why would God allow a tsunami to happen and 250,000 people to die? Basically, what these people say, they say, if I were God, well, thank God they are not, if I were God, I would not let things happen. I don't know if you realize, if you ever meditated philosophically, about what an enormous statement this is, because saints from all the traditions, they told us a very simple fact. The only possibility for God, for the cosmic consciousness, if you want, for life, if you don't like any personal idea of God, to make the human being completely free, completely free, freedom. You can fly from one end of the universe to the other, 
you can die or you can live, you can create or you can dissolve, you can do whatever. The only way to give freedom is not to give any imposition. Because if there is any tyranny or imposition, then that's not freedom. There is no freedom when you are under a tyranny. No? Try to realize, if God would hit with a lightning bolt instantaneously, every man or woman who joins a satanistic organization, there are plenty of them, who would join satanic organizations anymore? Nobody would be a satanist, because you'd know that in the moment when you sign up, the next 10 seconds you'll be charged by a lightning bolt. No, everybody would be trembling with fear, and everybody would say, Big Brother is watching you. You can't do this, because in the moment when you start doing something against God, you are hit by a bolt. And that would be freedom. Would people love God because they are free? Somebody would come and say, in our society, there is nobody who practices Satanism. Of course, because they are scared shitless to practice Satanism. And it's not because of love. And therefore, the only way to give freedom, that's why many, many, many saints have said that, is for the cosmic consciousness to hide itself. Try to realize, if I would be able to invoke the divine consciousness tonight to manifest in this room and to invite the finger of God to poke itself in this yoga hall and start performing some absolutely overwhelming and convincing miracles of space and time so that the most skeptical person in this room would be convinced that there is a superhuman almighty power conscious power in this universe who would be free nobody because everybody from that moment on will say oh my god i've been to the agama yoga hall and there there was a demonstration and now i know that's why nobody was able to prove the existence of god not even jesus no even about jesus people say oh maybe he walked on water maybe maybe he existed maybe not maybe he resurrected maybe not maybe he was god maybe not no Nobody managed to prove because it is part of the divine will that it should be unknown to the normal person. Because if the divine would be known, would make itself known, then you would have no choice. There will be no freedom. Everybody in this room, and some of you maybe are just curious travelers who heard that Swami Vivekananda is doing some crazy lectures and you are not really into spirituality. Maybe some of you are spiritual seekers and already have done some work with it. Everybody who is in spirituality knows that one of the typical keynotes for the spiritual seeker is doubt. You have doubts. From going into a Buddhist monastery to coming to a yoga hall and from going into an Indian ashram to a Christian place of prayer, people have doubts. You think you are the only one who has doubts and that your doubts are smarter than my doubts? Welcome to the club. Everybody has doubts. Even great yogis had great doubts. Because to have doubts is part of the process. And everybody says, this Swami talks and talks and he doesn't seem to be very fit as well. At least if we see him levitating a little bit or something, maybe we'd believe in all this shit which he keeps telling every night. You know what? Even if I would levitate, I wouldn't convince you. Jesus raised dead people after four days and half of the population crucified him saying he's a blasphemer and he does that with the power of the devil. Or it's not true. Nobody can convince anybody with anything. The faith does not come from facts. People still argue if Uri Geller can bend spoons or not. No? Like, can you convince really that Uri Geller can bend spoons? No, you can't. Although it was done in laboratories. 
What I'm trying to say here is, try to realize, all of you are longing for freedom. All of you want to become like Shiva, the Lord of the universe, dancing freely from one end of the universe to the other. To be able to rise to such dignity, to be able to rise to such emancipation, the cosmic consciousness has to play an incredible game. It has to take the risk of giving you freedom. And then you can become a Satanist. And no bolt of lightning will hit you. You can deny the very existence of the cosmic consciousness. You can do the most incredible things. And besides the law of karma, which is like the law of gravitation, we can't avoid it. And that's not made to punish you. It's simply a law of the universe for the balance of things. Exception made of that, nobody is going to harm you in any way. Nobody knows. Everybody doubts. People say, if somebody could at least demonstrate it to me a little bit once, pull the curtain a little bit and show me. Welcome to the club. Nobody is going to demonstrate to you anything before you reach it yourself with your own strength. Therefore, it's normal to have doubts. The, a, a great tantric text, Tantra Sara, says, Falling and falling and standing up again and struggling and falling again and standing up and struggling. This is how one reaches eternal life or emancipation. Everybody has doubts. Everybody falls from time to time because the cosmic consciousness is playing hide and seek. And in the moment when you fully are ready to give yourself completely, in that moment you see it because you have no more doubts. That is why the doubts cannot be eliminated. The, the pupils of Morihei Ueshiba, Morihei Ueshiba kept telling them that now that he developed this Aikido sphere of force and so on, he became invincible. There was nobody who would harm, harm him in any way. And his advanced disciples who are advanced Aikido fighters, martial artists, they said, even if 10 of us attack you with spears, You'll still, all around you, circling you with spears, with sharp spears, you still can defend yourself from all of us? And he said, yes. And then they said, demonstrate, otherwise we don't believe you. And Morihei Ueshiva had to do it. And they attacked him with spears, and Morihei Ueshiva gave one of these samurai screams, and he dematerialized. And he appeared 10 meters away on a staircase. He was out of their circle. And then he told them, because you forced me to make this demonstration, and actually you didn't force me, but it was my life mission to create Aikido to live this gift to Japan. And I wanted to do it. And he said, because you forced me to show you this, my life has just become 10 years shorter. You took my karma, you ate my days because I accepted to do this. Because it was, I was not supposed to show you. You should have had your doubts. Who am I to resolve your doubts? Try to realize, if I'm resolving your doubts, it's like I'm telling the end of the story. The end of the story is that, and that, you all know it. And I know, I trust more than you do, that you are going to reach there one day. But the point is, that I can't do that for you. You have to reach there. And the point is, that if I would solve it for you, it would be like I would tell you the end of the book. It's like in that famous joke, where a guy goes with a London cab, and the, the cab driver asks, so sir, where do you go? Oh, he says, I'm going to see the mousetrap, the play of Agatha Christie. Oh, the guy says, that's a famous uh, play. I've seen it also. Yeah, you'd have a great night. And then in the end, when he gets down, 
the guy, the cab driver says, looks at the money and says, sir, but no tip for me. And the guy says, oh, what do you need a tip? I don't have any money. Just forget it. You cab drivers are a spoiled bunch and you always want tips. And as he goes, the driver rolls down the window and says, the butler did it. <laughs> like, this is what it is to get the answer before your time. No? In the LSD music of Pink Floyd, Wish You Are Here, Shine On You, Crazy Diamond, there is this verb, there is this verse which says, you came to the secret too soon, now you cry for the moon. Even the truth is not good to come too soon. That green pill which makes you see what the matrix is, should come in its own time when you are prepared for it and when every fiber of your being is asking for it. That is why people have to be prepared for the spiritual thing. The divine consciousness gives you, as human beings, the greatest possible gift, the gift of freedom. And to do that, it has to hide from you. Because otherwise, you would not have the complete freedom. Who would make choices? Like, I want to be spiritually indifferent. If you would be 100% that there is a divine consciousness watching you right now, you wouldn't be spiritually indifferent. How can you get the freedom to be whatever you do? You can get that freedom that in spite of Swami Vivekananda shouting his lungs over you this evening, you are still going to go home and say, ah, maybe, who knows? That's exactly the way it is. And this doubt is exactly the source of your freedom. Because in the moment when you are going to make it, and in the moment when you are going to make your choices, those choices will not be neither because of pain, not because of fear, not because of any advantage, not because of anything. It would be pure love. All the divine wants is your spontaneous love, nothing else. And that is why the freedom involves that the human being should have the possibility to do that. And that's why the divine consciousness doesn't mingle too much in people's lives. And even when miracles happen, like the miracle of Fatima or of Lourdes or of this or of that, Everybody says, ah, it's the church that says that a miracle happened in Fatima. Actually, it was an optical effect of the sun because there were some peculiar clouds or some crystals in the air or something. And in this way, the doubt remains. Nobody can prove anything. Not even Jesus, remember. He performed miracles. They didn't convince. They convinced some people, but not everybody. And that is why I'm saying, remember, this is detachment. This is non-possessiveness. Can you be, can you love other people the way God loves them? Like maybe people in your life, your children, your lovers, your parents, your friends are going to do mistakes, <coughs> big mistakes. Are you going to interfere and force them to do what's good or what you think is good? Or are you going to have an unconditional love? The unconditional love is the one which gives the proper answer. That's why I'm telling to all of you, if you think there are people who say I'm 40 years old and until today I didn't have a single good relationship. With my parents I screwed up, we just respect each other and that's it. With my 
husband, wife, I have been divorced 15 times and tried 15 partners and it didn't work. With my friends, it didn't work. I don't have any good lifelong friend. This, 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 like I don't have, people are sincere and they say I haven't got a single divine relationship, a single wonderful, perfect relationship. Then my answer is stop treating people like objects because they do treat you like an object, you are their object, and you unwittingly treat other people as objects. Start giving unconditional love. People are free spirits. They have the right to do everything. They even have the right to harm you. Of course you say, oh, anything, but not harm me, right? Thus you put conditions, unconditional love. And therefore, remember, that this is like any one of you wants to improve the quality of your relationships, stop having attached relationships. Start having detached relationships and you will see the amazing paradox that attachment kills love and detachment is the one which promotes the actual love. Moreover, just to conclude this and to draw the line for this important subject, the yogis of India, one commentator of the Yoga Sutra, has brought forth a third possibility to get attached. So, I said you can get attached to material property and objects. You can get attached to people in relationships, treating them as objects. And third, there are some people who can get attached by receiving presents. It's a very, very peculiar, it's like a niche, a very strange thing. But yes, the yogis have mentioned it. There are people who don't accumulate, they are not workaholics, they, it's not about other people, but they are in a position of popularity or of power and they start receiving presents. Remember that gifts can also possess you, because most of the gifts, except when you receive gifts given with pure love, and not many people can do that, they are given with an interest, they have a motivation, and if you think you are smart and you are not going to pay for it, Think twice. A woman receives a gift from a man and the, her friend says, why do you take this gift from Jack? Because Jack wants to lay you. We both know this. And you say, oh, I don't want to sleep with Jack, but he has such a good taste and he's such a gentleman. Look what a beautiful, exquisite present. Who can refuse that? You accepted the gift. Your aura has accepted the energy and the idea which comes with it. Even if you think today it's not going to happen. You are getting bought with that gift. Now, there is no free lunch except when it comes from spiritual places. And therefore, the yogis have noticed this, that some people get caught in this web by receiving presents. And, by re and they can't give up the presents and they say what to do. And then obligations, 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 obligations build up and your karma is loaded and your aura is loaded with those energies and you can't get rid of them. That's why yogis have said, they didn't say that you should not accept presents, but they said always when you accept presents, first of all think from whom it comes and for which reason, and then decide if you want to keep it. You may want to keep it, but you may not want to keep it. Some people say, oh, I can't refuse presents from people that I love. 
my mother is a very attached person and she wants to keep me in the loop. So she keeps giving me presents because my mother wants me to actually be with her. There is a purpose to her presence. She wants to keep me near her. And I'm, I don't really want to be the prisoner of my mother. And I don't know, but if I refuse her presence, she will be devastated. She will be, you know, it would be, she would be unconsoled. How can I refuse a present from my own mother? And the yogis say, take it and discreetly give it away. Thus you are not attached. There is a proverb in Romania which says, a gift of a gift makes paradise. Like you take a gift and you turn it into a gift. Like I'm not attached to this gift. It's a beautiful gift. Thanks for the thought. And tomorrow, either you know it or not, these gifts go to a poor person or to a friend or to somebody. In this way, you did your part and I am not attached to the gift itself. Thus, remember that everything is being bought. Taoist experts say that a young woman gets a sugar daddy who pays her apartment and things and this, and the woman thinks, ah, what's the big deal? This guy is 80 years old, he can hardly get it up. Two more blowjobs and he would die of a heart attack one day. Meanwhile, I have an apartment, I have a car, I have a fur coat, it's okay. And the Taoists say that woman will get 20 years older in three years and the old man will rejuvenate day after day. Because what has she got to pay for his generous financial support? Youthfulness, her ojas, vitality. So she pays it. There is no free lunch, only she doesn't realize that she will not pay. She thinks she's smart and she caught God by the ankle and now it's the opportunity of her life. There is no free lunch. So presents are also containing this energy in them which can keep you obliged and determine you to lose your youthfulness, to lose your health. Aparigraha addresses all these three. The accumulation of material goods which tie you down, the attachment to other people which makes your relationships become horrible, mechanical, possessive, like dealing with objects, not with human beings. And last but not least, the presence, the being caught through presence. That's why the yogis always recommend detachment. The word which is used today in English to define aparigraha is detachment, like non-possessiveness. Unfortunately, detachment is a very slippery word in the English language and many others because it is translated analogously with indifference and carelessness. Oh, this person has a problem, I'm detached, which means I don't give a shit. They have their problem, it's their problem, I am detached. That's not what detachment means. Mahatma Gandhi was very detached because he was a yogi and a spiritual person, and yet he was ready to die for the ideas, for India, for the cause that he was. So to be detached is not at all to be indifferent. The person who is detached is deeply engaged, cares, loves, but will not take bullshit, will not be manipulated, who is not biased, and it is not the victim of any emotional blackmail. Things are simple, straight, the truth is the truth. When Gandhi was stopped uh, promoting the revolution because some guys in India were starting making violent riots, people said, Gandhi, will you stop? We took years for us to start this, and Gandhi said, this has become a country of murderers. And the politicians attached to their goals, they said, Gandhiji, you cannot say that because you are the father of this nation. 
like you make your own children killers. And Mahatma Gandhi said, father or no father, this has become a nation of murderers and somebody should save. You know, like the fact that you are my children doesn't mean that I cannot say you are a murderer. You are my child. I love you. I go even in hell for you. You go to prison. I will come and sit in prison with you. But you are a murderer. That's God's truth. You are not going to play games with me that black is white and white is black. This is the reality. This is detachment. Detachment means I will not be emotionally blinded to say that black is white and white is black, but I care a lot. This is the problem. The problem is that detachment is an emotion belonging to the crown chakra, and it's very rare. It's very seldom for normal people to be detached. People say, oh, stop smoking, stop drinking, I care about you, stop drinking, and so on. And what you tell them, you know, bugger off, you keep telling me this, I'm getting blue, I'm turning blue. I don't want to stop smoking, it gives me pleasure, I'm possessed by the demons, that's the way it is, leave me alone. And then that person says, very well, have it any way you want, you don't want to keep smoking, I'm not going to care about you, go and die of cancer. This is not detachment, this is that I go from attachment to indifference. The opposite of attachment is criminal indifference, cold indifference. Detachment is not the opposite of that. Detachment is the middle truth. It's the middle path which says, I am there, I care, I love, but I'm ready to give freedom at the same time, and I'm ready to treat everything unconditionally and in a divine way. And that's why very few people really have this emotion in their daily life. The schooling system, the family, the society doesn't teach us how to be detached. And that's why we prefer not to use the word detachment, but to tell to people cultivate aparigraha, non-possessiveness. Because if, if I would tell aparigraha means detachment, be detached of your money, be detached of your wealth, be detached in your relationships, people would mean, oh, so Swami is telling us to be cool and kind of aloof and indifferent. No, this is the problem. There is a very thin line which defines what detachment is. And uh, therefore, detachment is a rare quality. Remember that in India and in all the spiritual environments of Thai Buddhism, Christian monasticism, if you are not detached, for them it's the most sure sign that you are not a spiritual person. Even folklore has this. It is known in folklore that the spiritual person, one of the marks of the spiritual person, is that the spiritual person must be detached. There has not been a man or a woman who was a giant in spirituality who was attached. It's black and white. If you are attached, you are not spiritual. And if you are spiritual, you are detached. There is no other way. That's why in India there is, and not only, there exists a lot of hypocrisy. People have learned how to play detachment in front of other people, a theatrical, hypocritical way, because the peasants won't donate money. You won't get charity unless you look like you don't care. And many, many gurus, I have seen so many Mahamandleshwars and gurus and others, they all the time would play detached. And when you'd get to know them in their private life, you'd find some of the most attached and tensed people in the world who are not detached at all, but they have learned very well the lesson of outer behavior because it's known. 
if you show attachment, you are not an enlightened being. You are not because nobody has seen until today an, a realized human being who is attached. Those two can't go together because of the arousing of the crown chakra. When the crown chakra is aroused, it automatically produces an emotion, a natural, spontaneous emotion. I don't know why, but I'm detached. Even among you, there have been some of you who are born since childhood, from a previous life. You have some arousing of your crown chakra, and maybe today, for the first time, you understand why even as children and as teenagers, you are different from everybody in your class and in your family, because you are mysteriously the one weirdo who was detached. Everybody thought it's natural to go for this, to go for this, and you had a kind of spontaneous detachment in which you could let go very easily of some things, you could not get caught into some things, and everybody would say, you are weird. Ah, you are not of this world. You are a bit bizarre. That's actually detachment, and it's a great quality, and in India, the spiritual people, they are dying to get detached. You know, like detachment is the biggest qualification. When people see that you are detached, they say, oh, here is a real spiritual person, because this person is detached. If, if it's fake or not, of course, that has to be analyzed, because it can be faked up till a certain point. Of course, you cannot fake it, like, for example, when you are in front of uh, soldiers that a platoon to execute you, like in front of death, it's very difficult to be detached. And there are other circumstances where you immediately lose your masks and people can see immediately who you truly are. But until you reach to that point, like, you know, Mahatma Gandhi said, shoot me. You want to shoot somebody? I'm guilty for the fate of India. People thought he was bluffing. But when he was shot, Mahatma Gandhi forgave. He simply said, oh God, oh God. And he said before, if somebody is going to murder me, I forgive them in advance. This was not a bluff, because he would have said, ah, oh, shucks, fuck, I had to do my morning prayers and now you shot me, you know? This would have been attachment, you know? Like, I am attached because I still had many things to accomplish. Today I got shot. This is it. No, every day can be the last day. Therefore, this is the wisdom of detachment. It's very difficult to understand detachment. If you have no Sahasrara yet, and if you are not an old soul with a lot of spiritual things in you, it's like detachment is a city in China. Sorry for those of you who go often in China, because for you the cities of China are known, but that's an expression which means a place where nobody has been and which nobody knows. Unfortunately, for many people, detachment is not even a goal. I advise so many men and women in their tantric relationships, in their relationship with money, with job, with yoga practice, with this, I'm advising them all the time, cultivate detachment, be more detached, act with detachment, do this thing with detachment. Guess what? Not only that they can't do it, if they can't do it, then that's my problem as a teacher, to show them how to do it. They don't even try. They say, uh, why should I be detached? The only answer to this is, bang your head for another 100,000 years, and when you learn the lesson of wisdom, come back and I'll teach you detachment. If you don't want to be detached, that's the end of it. You don't want, I can't force you to be detached. 
But for those of you who hear the voice of wisdom, I'm telling you this much. Try. For don't, don't, this is theory. We just talked tonight. A gram of practice is worth tons of theory. Try. Please, please, please. Take a vow for six months, for one year, whatever you think is right for you. Take a vow. For one year, I will try my best to be detached completely. I will practice non-attachment, non-possessiveness with my money, with my ownership, with my material property, with my relationships, with everything. I will try to live my life because until now my life brought me lots of pain and lots of dissatisfaction. If you are attached, every time when that attachment is cut, you suffer. Buddha said it. Any pleasure is sooner or later choked by pain. There is no pleasure which goes forever. Any one of you thinks that you have discovered something which gives you pleasure every day, all the time, you are going to bite the dust. At some point that pleasure is going to be over and then you are going to suffer. And therefore, it's much more smart to cultivate non-attachment. My advice warmly to you is try Try me on this one, verify me on this one for six months. In, but really be correct, like if you have willpower, don't try to lie to yourself. No, there is this Bulgarian proverb which says if you want to drown, don't torture yourself with shallow water. No, like if you want to drown, go where the water is deep so you can really do it, you know. If you want to try detachment, don't dabble into it. Do it. Be truly honest, you know, give it a try. You had pain in your life for 30 years until now. Nobody seems to understand you. The relationships don't work. People come and go. Your material situation tortures you. So now it's good, now it's bad, now it's this. Try detachment for six months, for one year, but 100%. Give it the whole hand. Whenever you catch yourself attached, cut mercilessly with a razor sharp knife. Don't accept any possessiveness and anything to anything in your life. Like fanatically cultivate detachment for one year. And then I can promise none of you will want to go back to the previous way of being. None of you. Because detachment is making you free and happy. And we practice attachment because we have never discovered detachment. Detachment gives wings to your soul and then you discover who you really are and what you can really do. That's why there is a way of no return. I'm cheating you, I'm luring you into detachment. Practice detachment for one year and you'll be changed for the rest of your lives. Try it. You all know what detachment is. You know how Shivananda or Ramakrishna or Mananda Mai or Jesus or Rumi, how they were more Buddha, how they were detached. Your subconscious mind knows the answer to this. Practice detachment. Read the papers of today. There are some wonderful examples of detachment. Read more and more examples and you are going to be very inspired and try to practice this aparigraha. It's a great virtue. And to demonstrate, let's conclude tonight's lecture with a statement of Patanjali. Patanjali, for each one of the virtues, for each one of the yamas and niyamas, in the end says what benefit you get if you practice it. For example, for Ahimsa, Patanjali said if you practice Ahimsa really good, you will get a Siddhi, a paranormal power which makes you spread nonviolence around you. 
So even the animals be, lose their aggressiveness in the presence of such a person. Buddha Siddhi, something is happening if you practice truthfulness. Saturday I told you what Brahmacharya gives. What does Aparigraha give? The non-possessiveness. Patanjali gives a huge statement for this one. Patanjali says, through the staunch practice of Aparigraha, one gets to remember one's previous lives and understands the why and how of this world. Both of them are huge. Buddha said that he remembered all his lifetimes in the second before he reached Nirvana. When he was 99.9% there, the last thing which happened to him, he remembered all his 10,000 previous lifetimes, and thus he understood who he was, what his root was, where he was coming, what the personal history of this soul that he was, was, and how he reached to Nirvana. So Patanjali says, you can get 99.9% enlightened by simply practicing Aparigraha. No? That's all it takes. He says, if you practice detachment, you will spontaneously get the knowledge of this because you can't get the knowledge of the previous lives precisely because you are attached. No? Because now this is your sister and in the previous life she was your husband and you are a woman. It's completely insane. You lose your mind if you see this. And that's why you can't because you are too attached to your pre present life and to your body and to your conditions. And the subconscious mind puts a barrier so you don't lose your mind. If you'd see that your mother was your lover in a previous life, it's like this is, you know, what's the difference between this and incest? Just a life of go, I was banging my mother because we're lovers. And now he's, she's my mother. No, it's a thought which drives a person to insanity. And if I would be detached, I would smile and say, yes, that's how the universe is built. The universe is going like this. I'm very free about these things. Then I don't get crazy. And that's why my subconscious mind to protect me, it's simply not shining forth with these things. So it preserves my sanity. If I would see that I have been a torsionist for the Inquisition or in a German concentration camp, I would go crazy with remorse. And therefore, my life doesn't show me this because I still have to live my life and do good things, experience my karma, grow up spiritually and not be tormented and tortured constantly by what I have done or not done in my previous lives. That's why people who are attached, their mind is not showing them the previous lives as a protection, as a self-protection. So Patanjali says, practice detachment and then the subconscious mind will open for you. It's very simple. And you will understand the why and how of this universe. It's even bigger. To understand the why and how of this universe is to mean to understand why I am here. How is this universe built? Who is the creator of this universe? What's my relationship with the creator of this universe? And all the big questions. And Patanjali says you can get that by simply practicing detachment. If you practice detachment, you will reach the knowledge of the why and how of this life. Doesn't everybody in this room wants to get the knowledge of the why and how in this life? Don't you want to know what the matrix is? So you take the green pill, which is yoga practice, and you see what the matrix is. It's as simple as that. Therefore, nothing works without detachment. It's impossible to reach spiritual realization without detachment. That's why it's very imperious for everybody who wants to be spiritual to take a decision even for a short time 
Maybe you don't have the power to say, for the rest of my life I'll be detached, because it sounds like suicide. Okay, do it for one year. I'm ready to cheat you with this one. Your mind will be much more relaxed with one year. Because I know that if you do it for one year, you will not come back. You will stay with detachment because it's the right option. As it is with Tantra. People say, oh, let, should, could, can I just try tantric sex for a year or two? Yes, try. I have not known a single man or woman who tried tantric sex for a year and then chose to do sex the other way again. Because it's that boring to do normal sex after you have tried tantric sex. So it's kind of a one-way ticket. You try it, you're gone. You are into it completely. It's the same with detachment. Detachment seems difficult. Like, my nature is a passion. And when somebody kicks me in the shins, I want to take revenge. Revenge is sweet. I want to kick the bastard. I'm attached. And now Swami is telling me, be detached. Somebody kicked you in the shins, just let them be. Forgive them and be detached. People say it's difficult. I don't know if I can do that for the rest of my life. Do it for six months. Do it for one year and you'll be gone. You will be into this. And that's why I'm advising people to give it a practical try. And Patanjali promises wonders. The knowledge of your previous lives, which is almost enlightenment, and the understanding of the why and how of this existence, which actually is enlightenment. So Patanjali says, if you are detached, you are enlightened. That's what it takes. Krishna in Bhagavad Gita says almost the same thing. Arjuna asks him, Krishna, how do I get control over the mind, which in their language, in their dialogue, means the supreme realization. And Krishna says you need vairagya and abhyasa. And vairagya is just another Sanskrit word for detachment. It means renunciation, detachment. So it's an analog. It's a synonym of this word from Yoga Sutra. So he says you need detachment and perseverance. Like keep practicing, keep meditating, keep doing your yoga. That's one condition. Never give up before you reach the goal. And the second condition is be detached. If you are detached and you practice, you will reach. It's as simple as that. This is the message from the great yogis. That's why Aparigraha is such a gigantic quality, such a gigantic qualification for spiritual practitioners, and I don't have words enough to recommend it for you. And are, that's why the only thing which I can say, try it for a while and see how your life transforms from it. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.